Well, as Amber indicated, it is good to be home. Uh, We spent two weeks in Florida, got to see a lot of different things. I got to see Tropical Storm Alberto. How about that, right? You wait 12 months to go to Florida, and then there's a tropical storm just hanging out in the Gulf of Mexico, waiting to greet. So we got a little bit of rain while we were in Florida, Uh, but we did manage to get to the beach a little bit, which is uh, one of our uh, happy places. Uh, We got to see a lot of family. Uh, I got to see a lot of friends. We didn't do any theme parks, and that's a good thing. You know, no Disney World, no Universal, no crowds, no weird tourists. Um, now that we live in Kansas, I guess we would be a, considered a tourist, but um, we didn't do any theme parks. Uh, but we did visit our old church, Suntree United Methodist, and it was nice to be back, uh, but it was different. It was different. You know, when I was gro- uh, growing up, uh, I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida. Lived in the same house for all 18 years. Uh, you know, all from, my parents brought me home to that house from the hospital when I was born. And uh, I, I stayed there all the way through graduation. And I have a ton of memories at that house. Uh, one of the memories is we had citrus trees in the backyard. And so we, I would run around and play with my friends. And then we'd get hungry or thirsty or whatever. We'd just run in the backyard, pick oranges off the back tree, and just start eating them. We'd leave this pile of uh, orange peels on the ground. Um, also, when I was born, my parents planted an oak tree in our front yard. And it grew and grew. And if you've ever seen a, a live oak tree in, uh, in Florida, you know they grow really big, really fast. And then when my sister was born, um, my parents did the same thing. They planted another uh, oak tree in the front yard, and it continued to grow. Um, And so those are some of my memories. But um, my parents moved when I was in college. Uh, They moved from West Palm Beach to Sebastian, Florida. And the new family that bought our old house changed a lot of things. Um, They changed a lot of things about the way it looked. For instance, the house color. Um, Our house used to be this beautiful golden yellow color, kind of indicative of uh, South Florida. And they painted it all white. And it just looked ugly. I didn't like it. And and they they extended the driveway. And so we used to have a lot of grass on this one side of the house. They paved it all so they could park their big ugly boat in the front. And and I didn't like that either. Uh, We had driven by uh, many years later to kind of see the old house and see the difference. But they also cut down my sister's oak tree. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, why did they do that? It was a big, beautiful shade tree, and they, they cut it down. So going back to our old church, it's kind of like going back home after moving away. You know, it, it's, it's good. It's a part of you, but it's just different. And you're like, why did they do that? And, and so all that to say that it's good to be back home with all of you, our church family. And uh, as Amber mentioned, we're kicking off a new message series called The Hole in Our Gospel. And so for the next six weeks, uh, we're going to be exploring what it looks like to serve others. And where are the needs in our community? And we're also going to be exploring what it looks like to be on mission for Jesus in our everyday lives. And the series is based on a book um, by Richard Stearns, who is the president of World Vision. And if you're not familiar with World Vision, uh, World Vision is an amazing organization. And what they do is they feed and they clothe and they educate the world's poorest and most marginalized people. And you can sponsor a child for $35 a month. And basically what that does is it provides food and clothes and education for that child in some third world country. So it's a really amazing deal. And Rich Stearns had an amazing journey into World Vision. 
Now, he got his bachelor's and his MBA from Ivy League schools, so he's super well-educated. He served as the CEO of Parker Brothers, um, the company that makes board games. So he was CEO of that company. And after that, he served as the CEO of Lennox. And that's the company that makes fine china and fine crystal. I don't own any of that in my house, but I heard it's really nice. Um, So he was serving as the CEO of Linux when God began calling him to serve for World Vision. And uh, he resisted it for a long time. He had a friend that actually called him up and said, Hey, Rich, do you know that World Vision is looking for a new president? And he's like, Yeah, I'm not interested. And then a recruiter, a headhunter, called him and said, Rich, we think that you're the perfect person to become the new president of World Vision. And he said, no, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. And uh, one of the big reasons why he felt like he wasn't interested is because he wasn't equipped to handle such a calling. Um, as far as vocationally goes, he, he's, I've never served in an organization like World Vision. You know, I've worked for board game companies and, and fine china and crystal companies. I, I don't know how to lead an organization like that. I've led a Bible study in my church. But I've never led an organization like World Vision. And he also had his family to consider. He was making a really nice income as CEO of Linux. And he was going to have to take a substantial pay cut in order to be the president of World Vision. So, like, I've got a family to support. And so I don't think that's a good idea. And then also it's going to require him to relocate halfway across the country. And nobody in their right mind would relocate halfway across the country because God called them to. Um, But, you know, there's going to be some implications there. But as the saying goes, God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. Yes. God equips the called. And after 20 uh, plus years in corporate America, Rich Stearns left World Vision to become their next president. And he wrote the book to tell his story and the story of the people that he encountered along the way. And he talks about our role in God's overarching story. And so uh, the idea, the main point of the book, I'm just going to read it from right here on page two. It says, the idea behind the whole in our gospel is quite simple. It's basically the belief that being a Christian or a follower of Jesus requires much more than just having a personal and transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. And that's what the book is about. And that's what he wrote about. And I had kind of a, a, a really neat experience with the book. I actually received this book while I was in seminary. Went to Asbury Theological Seminary. And the school gave the book to every student. Now, when I received it, um, I had been on several mission trips. I had been serving in, on mission uh, in a lot of different ways. I, I had done inner city missions. I had done missions in my backyard in Florida, um, you know, serving in the community in different ways. I even served uh, international missions. I led a mission trip uh, to Jamaica for five straight years, took huge groups to Jamaica to serve in um, depressed areas in Jamaica. And there's always this debate that goes on in my mind. Uh, it's like, what, what comes first? Is it discipleship or is it serving? You know, what comes first, discipleship or serving? So is it learning and then going out and doing? Or is it going out and doing and then, and then saying, oh, I, I need to explore more about this Jesus fellow. And, and you go deeper in your discipleship. Well, for me, serving was the catalyst for discipleship. Uh, loving others fostered this deep love of Jesus. 
And when I received this book, I took it with me on a vacation. See, I, I worked in the corporate world for 11 years, and I, I was doing really well. And uh, on one uh, company trip that the company paid for, uh, they sent uh, me and a bunch of other top producers in the company to uh, the Atlantis Resort on Paradise Island in the Bahamas. Really beautiful resort. If you've ever been there, you know it's, it's really incredible. Um, but while Amber and I were there, uh, we were stupid and we bought a timeshare at Atlantis. And, uh, and so we had this timeshare. We said, well, let's go back uh, to Atlantis and go on vacation. Well, I brought this book with me. And there's a certain irony that happens when you read a book about poverty at a five-star resort in the Caribbean. You know, it just doesn't quite fit. And I remember being by the pool. We were laying out, and it's the summertime, so it's super hot. And, and, and I'm reading this book by the pool, and I'm reading the stories. And they start touching me in a certain way. And so I start crying. I'm laying there by the pool, but it's okay because I'm sweating and nobody can tell. It's like, you know, are they tears or is this guy really sweaty? But I discovered an answer to a really important question. And that question is, what breaks your heart that breaks the heart of God? What breaks your heart that breaks the heart of God? And I discovered that when I serve others, God works in me. And I discovered that I love meeting people at their deepest need. And so my heart was on fire for missions and loving others. And there's this great passage in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, he wrote in chapter 20 about how he's got this love for God, but he's being persecuted by other people. And he wants to talk about it. He wants to share this love for God, um, but but he's um, being beat up for it. And he says, this starts in verse 9, he says, His word, God's word, is Uh, is um, in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And I love that passage because I think it describes what I was going through at that time when I was serving on missions. There was just a fire in my bones and I couldn't hold it in anymore. And I was already being called into full-time ministry when I read this book. But God was calling me to go deeper. And I felt like God was calling me to live out the full gospel. And I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about the gospel. And in the Greek language, uh, the word gospel is euangelion. It's kind of a funny word, euangelion. And it literally means good news. That's why when we talk about the good news of, that Jesus brought, I mean, it's, it's coming from that word. And the good news of the gospel says that through Christ's death on the cross, our sins are forgiven and we can now be reconciled to God. And that's indeed good news. That's why we sing songs like Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Uh, I was blind, but now I see. And that's the amazing good news of the gospel. But sometimes this tends to be the only part of the gospel that evangelical Christians talk about. If you've ever gone to like the mall or you've been out in a public place and somebody hands you a track, you know, that little slip of paper and it has the four spiritual laws on it. You know, those laws are um, you're, a, you're a despicable sinner and you're in need of a savior. That's number two. Um, um, and Jesus Christ died for your sins. And if you accept him today, you can go to heaven. Those are the four spiritual laws. And those laws are true. We are 
sinful. We are born into sin and we are in need of a savior. And Jesus did die for our sins. And if we accept him, we do go to heaven. Um, But that's not the entirety of the gospel. And people place an emphasis on getting people into heaven. That's the emphasis that sometimes can come up. But the good news Jesus proclaimed goes beyond salvation. And it goes beyond forgiveness of sins. And the gospel also signifies the coming of God's kingdom on earth. And this new kingdom welcomes the poor and the sick and the grieving and the crippled and the leper and the alien and the enslaved. And the kingdom also welcomes women and children and orphans. Where justice becomes a reality. And the kingdom of God isn't only experienced in the afterlife when we die. But here and now. Because the love of God and the kingdom of God is embodied in his people, in you, in me. But there's a problem. We focus more on getting people into heaven, which is important. I want to make sure to emphasize that. That's important. But we also need to be focusing on how to get heaven in the people. The transformed heart of Christ-likeness is what cultivates a deep, And genuine love for others. And Jesus' heart was on fire for others. And there's a few passages that I want to read that illustrate the love of Christ. And these stories come from the Gospels. uh, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, the first one I'm going to start with is from uh, Mark chapter 1 verses 40 through 42. It says, A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved with compassion, and that's the character of our God. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing. Be clean. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared, and the man was healed. Now, you would think that this is the kind of stuff that would bring about universal joy and celebration. But you'd be wrong. Despite Jesus' love for people and the miraculous work he was doing, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time, persecuted him. There's a story from John chapter 9. Uh, various verses throughout that whole chapter says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus said, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seen. The Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. You see, Pharisees start to slander Jesus. Another story, Amber actually spoke about this a couple months ago. This is from Luke uh, chapter 7. 36 to 39 says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. You see, sin for the Pharisee meant that that person was an outcast. They were excluded by the devout religious. 
And then Matthew, uh, Jesus calls Matthew. And this is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I love this part. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous, not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. You see, healing or doing any work on the Sabbath was a big no-no in that time. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in anger. One of the only passages in the Bible that talks about Jesus getting angry. Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed in their stubborn hearts said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. See, the Pharisees are more concerned about following the laws than they are about loving their neighbors. Last passage. Jesus um, is uh, talking to the disciples. This is in Matthew 25. And says, then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Pretty strong words. When I think of people who embody the love of Christ, one of the people that comes to my mind is Mother Teresa. Maybe you know her. Maybe you've heard her story. If you don't know her or are not very familiar with Mother Teresa, she's a Catholic nun and missionary. And she abandoned the comforts of her life and her world, and she lived with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. And one time, she gave a really powerful speech to a group of people that were gathered together. And I captured just a clip, just a small clip of her speech. And so I want to take a look at this together tonight now. Because how can we love God whom we don't see? St. John says, 
How can you say that you love God whom you don't see if you do not love your neighbor whom you see? Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. Hungry not only for bread, hungry for love, for the word of God, for the tender concern of somebody. Naked, I was naked and you clothed me, not only with a piece of cloth, Nakedness is that loss of that beautiful human dignity of the child of God. The dignity that have been created to love and to be loved. The dignity of that beautiful virtue, purity. I was homeless and you took me in. Not only for a house made of bricks, my wife, homeless, unwanted, unloved, a throwaway of society. But today we have right here in our country, we see the poor people, we see the young people with that disease, unwanted, unloved, a throwaway of society. Are we there to be that love, that kindness, that thoughtfulness to them and share with them the terrible pain, the terrible feeling of terrible loneliness, being a throwaway, have no one to be somebody to somebody. This is the nativity of Jesus. Being poor, being born as a poor. And if you're like me, your heart is moved when you see that. But you may not know what to do with it. Does God expect us to move to the slums of India? Not all of us. There are other ways to respond. So what does God expect of us? I think the answer is in 1 John chapter 4, um, verses 20 and 21. And Mother Teresa talked a little bit about this. Uh, it said, this is the message version written by Eugene Peterson. It says, if anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he is a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. God expects us to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. You can't love God and ignore the people you come in contact with. That's what the Pharisees did. They ignored the people they, come in, they came in contact with. Well, Rich Stearns tried ignoring somebody that he came in contact with. He wrote about it in this book, and so I want to read this passage for you today. He says, A few years back, I had my own encounter with somebody else's child. I was in Gujarat, India, about six months after the massive 2001 earthquake. While we were leaving the last village at the end of the final day of a 10-day multi-country trip, I was exhausted and looking forward to getting back to the hotel. 
and then back home the next morning. But something happened. As our car began to pull away and a throng, as our car began to pull away and a throng of people crowded around to wave goodbye, a desperate woman rushed up to my window with a little boy in her arms. She held him out to me with a pleading look in her eyes and said, please help me, please help my little boy. To my absolute horror, and I then saw that her little boy had no feet. His legs had been both amputated below the knee. And then, just as quickly, she was gone. Our car was on the road, and we were headed back to the hotel. Gradually, I put her haunting face out of my mind. I was so tired. World Vision had helped so many thousands in Gujarat in the months after the earthquake. We couldn't be expected to help every child. That last boy was not my responsibility, I reasoned, and so I tried to forget what I had seen as I flew home the next morning. Over the next few days, my body readjusted from the jet lag, and I returned to the daily demands of my office, but I could not get the disturbing image of this mother and child, someone else's child, out of my mind. It nagged at me and challenged me. Was I just a hypocrite, always talking about the importance of helping every child but not practicing what I preached? One night at dinner, I told my own kids about what I had seen and about how it was troubling me. Can't you do something, Dad? They asked. That very night, I sent an email to our team in India describing the boy and asking if they could find him. One child in the midst of a billion people. I didn't know his name. I could not remember even the name of the village where I had seen him. But two weeks later, I received an email with a photo of a six-year-old Vicus and the story of what had happened to him. During the earthquake, his house had collapsed on him, crushing both his legs and injuring his mother. With no immediate medical care, and by the time the help finally arrived days later, amputation was his only option. To save his life, a relief medical team from Korea amputated both his legs. Unable to walk, Vicus now could only crawl on all fours or be carried everywhere by his mother or father. So when I arrived in his village that day, a desperate mother waited for her moments and rushed to my departing car, hoping against all hope. that maybe this man from America could help. Believing that he could help, isn't, isn't that the grieving parents, isn't that what grieving parents did when Jesus passed through their village? Like the father who approached Jesus knelt before him and said, Lord, have mercy on my son. I asked our team in India whether we could help him. The answer came back that he would need another surgery and prosthetic limbs. It would cost $300. Would the U.S. office authorize the expenditure, they asked. No, I replied, World Vision would not pay for this. Rich Stearns will pay for this. You see, this was personal. Arguably, in my role at World Vision, I was already doing more than most people can do to help children in need. But God wanted more than my institutional programs and strategic responses. He wanted it to be as personal for me as it always is for him. Children are not statistics for God. And so I sent the money. Four months later, over the Christmas holiday, I was muttering under my breath. Someone had sent me a large email file that was taking far too long to download on my home computer. Finally, I opened the file with irritation and saw that it was a photograph of Vicus holding his mother's hand and standing on new legs. I wept as I stared into the eyes of somebody else's child, a little boy, I had never actually met, but whose predicament had become so very personal to me. 
Today, this picture hangs in my office in Seattle to remind me that every child is precious. And he actually uh, included a picture of this in his book and uh, with uh, Vicus and his new legs right there. If you want to check that out after the service today, you can. So even when answering the call to world vision, Rich still had to understand how he was to act on the things that God expected of him. He was learning to find and then fill the hole in our gospel. So where's the hole in El Dorado? Where's the need? Where's the pain? Where's the suffering? When we're not looking, we miss it. Where are the opportunities to love others? Well, next month, we're going to be spending a week, an entire week, fulfilling the beloved part of our vision. And Butler Mission Week, or BMW as we're calling it, is July 15th through 20th. And we're going to go into the community and we're going to be forming uh, community service, serving organizations and ministries all throughout Butler County and El Dorado. We're going to be performing intentional acts of kindness and saying thank you to people who pour into our community and celebrate that. And then we're going to end the week, we're going to cap the week with an amazing neighborhood block party. It's going to be hosted on the front lawn of Susan B. Allen Hospital. And there's going to be be free food and free games and free music. And we're just going to celebrate this wonderful city that we live in. And there's going to be a multitude of community service opportunities. You can serve with Butler Homeless Initiative and the Kids Need to Eat program, the Pregnancy and Family Resource Center, the Salvation Army, Numana, the YMCA, various nursing homes, the Flint Hills Services, El Dorado School System, the United Way, plus there's going to be many individuals who are going to need specific help. And you can be a part of this. We're going to have teams that are going to go out into the community. They're going to be made up of adults. They're going to be made up of high school and middle school students. And they're going to go out and we're going to serve in different shifts throughout the day. 9 a.m. to noon. 1 until 4. And then 6 until 8. And we're going to love on and we're going to celebrate our community. And this can be a defining moment for our church. Serving others and loving our neighbors Well, that can be a little intimidating. You might think, oh, I don't feel equipped. You know, I don't have any skills to give. But as we saw with Rich Stearns, and as you may already know, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God will give you what you need. And this may be a little uncomfortable. You say, I don't want to take those risks. This is a little too uncomfortable for me. I'm not a big fan of taking risks. Maybe somebody's going to ask me a question about my faith that I'm not sure I have an answer to. That's okay. God will give you that answer. And it might be scary. You might not know what to expect. And you're like, I don't think I can do this. But here's the thing. You'll think you'll do something that scares the hell out of you. But what you'll really be doing is something that scares the heaven into you. And you'll be changed on the inside. And I want to share one more excerpt from the book. This was really convicting the first time I read it. And it's still convicting to this day. And Rich writes about the church. 
And he says, when historians look back in 100 years, what will they write about this nation of 340,000 churches? What will they say of the church's response to the great challenges of our time? AIDS, poverty, hunger, terrorism, war. Will they say that these authentic Christians rose up and courageously uh, responded to the tide of human suffering? That they rushed to the front lines to comfort the afflicted and to douse the flames of hatred? Will they write of an unprecedented outpouring of generosity to meet the urgent needs of the world's poor? Will they speak of the moral leadership and compelling vision of our leaders? Will they write that this, the beginning of the 21st century, was the church's finest hour? Will they look back and see a church too comfortable, insulated from the pain of the rest of the world, empty of compassion and devoid of deeds? Will they write about a people who stood by and watched while 100 million died of AIDS and 50 million children were orphaned? Of Christianity who lived in luxury and self-indulgence while millions died for lack of food and water? Will school children read and discuss about a church that had the wealth to build great sanctuaries but lacked the will to build schools and hospitals and clinics? In short, will we be remembered as the church with the gaping hole in our gospel? How will the church of Jesus Christ respond to the lepers in our midst? The poor, the sick, and the oppressed in our country and in our world. Are we, like Christ, willing to respond with compassion and urgency to those who suffer? Are we willing? Do we have the kind of faith, the moral courage, the depth of love, and the strength of will to rise up off our padded pews to demonstrate the good news to the world? One way or another, this will be our defining moment. I want to encourage you to get involved in Butler Mission Week because this can be a defining moment for our church. And in our community. And you can do that today. I don't normally give you permission to pull out your phones. But you can do that right now. And you can open up your text app. And if you text BMW18. This BMW18. To 316. Hopefully we have the slide up here. Um, to 316-202-9577. You'll get a message right back to register for Butler Mission Week. Or, if you don't want to get on your phone right now, you can go home, go to our website, hopecovenant.church, and you can click on the banner at the top of the page and register. And when you register, uh, you've got some options. You can, you can serve for free. It doesn't cost anything to you. Or you can pay a nominal fee and get a really cool yellow t-shirt. It's about the same color as this slide. And I think it would be really awesome to have our church go out into the community for an entire week wearing these bright yellow shirts and saying, we love our community. We're here to celebrate our community and help our community. And, and so it's a nominal fee. If you're a student, middle schooler or high schooler, this is your mission trip for the summer. You're going to stay here at the church. Um, we'll, you'll have breakfast, lunch, and dinner here. And we're going to go out. We're going to join the adults. And we're going to go out into the community and we're going to serve as well. 
It costs $125 for the week, but that's also, that means, be, um, it's because it's also going to include a lot of supplies that we're going to have. We're going to do uh, fun and games in the evenings here at the church. We're actually bringing in a youth pastor from Florida, uh, a, an amazing speaker, a uh, really incredible man of God who's going to come in and uh, he's going to deliver a message every night uh, during BMW here at the church. And, and so this is your mission trip, and we really want you to be involved in this. So parents, if you've got teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers, um, please, let's get them signed up to experience this. Last thought, <clears throat> and we'll wrap it up. Um, last month, I, I was watching the royal wedding. Anybody else, just by show of hands, anybody watch the royal wedding? You know, Prince Harry and his new wife, Meghan. I guess that would make her a princess now. Pretty cool. She's from America, from what I understand. And uh, she has this really cool pastor's name is uh, by, uh, Bishop Michael Curry. Uh, he's a, a priest in the uh, Episcopal Church. And he delivered this great sermon, this great message at a wedding. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you know, usually the, the, the pastor doesn't deliver a great sermon. I've done weddings, uh, and, and my sermons aren't all that great at, at weddings. I mean, we're really there just to get people married and then, um, you know, celebrate love and all this stuff. But he delivered this amazing sermon, and I wanted to end our time uh, with that message today. I just took an excerpt of it because I think he talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of love, and I think it's a great way for us to end our time today. So uh, let's take a look. This way of love, it is the way of life. They, they got it. He died to save us all. He didn't, he didn't die for anything he could get out of it. Jesus did not get an honorary doctorate for dying. He, he, he didn't, he wasn't getting anything out of it. He gave up his life. He sacrificed his life for the good of others, for the good of the other, for the well-being of the world, for us. That's what love is. Love is not selfish and self-centered. Love can be sacrificial. And in so doing, becomes redemptive. And that way of unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive love changes lives. And it can change this world. If you don't believe me, just, just stop and think for imagine. Think and imagine. Well... Think and imagine a world where love is the way. Imagine our homes and families when love is the way. Imagine neighborhoods and communities where love is the way. I imagine governments and nations where love is the way. Imagine business and commerce when love is the way. Imagine this tired old world when love is, is the way. When, when love is the way, unselfish, sacrificial, redemptive, when love is the way, then no child will go to bed hungry in this world ever again. When love is the way, we will let justice roll down like a mighty stream and righteousness like an ever-flowing brook. When love is the way, poverty will become history. When love is the way, the earth will be a sanctuary. When love is the way, we will lay down our swords and shields.
down by the riverside to study war no more. When love is the way, there's plenty good room. Plenty good room for all of God's children. Because when love is the way, we actually treat each other well, like we are actually family. When love is the way, we know that God is the source of us all. And we are brothers and sisters, children of God. My brothers and sisters, that's a new heaven, a new earth, a new world a new human family. Let's pray. Oh God, your word tells us that you are love. And the work you are doing is evidence of that. And we don't need to see you to know that you exist and that your kingdom is at hand. You have given us a great commandment to love you and to love others as ourselves. And with that comes great expectations. Help us to look for ways to embrace your call in our lives and then act on it. As Butler Mission Week approaches, would you prompt each and every one of us to serve and celebrate in our city? Would you help us to be a light on top of a hill, the hope of the world, so that your name can be lifted high? Thank you for this day and the life that you have given us. We love you and we honor you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And every month we celebrate the sacrament of communion here at Hope Covenant Church. And it's a time for us to remember the love and amazing grace of God. And to remember the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, you might have celebrated communion uh, a thousand times. This might be your first time today. But either way, um, you are welcome at this table. You don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be a member of any church in order to receive the elements of the bread and the juice. And the gospel of Jesus says that the kingdom of God is available for everybody now, anybody who wants to get in on it. And that's why we serve an open table. So if you'd like to participate, you are welcome to join us. And at this time, I'd like to invite those who are helping with communion uh, to come forward. And as they do that, let us pray. Dear Lord and Father of all humanity, we approach this feast of remembrance and humility, gratitude, and anticipation. We're humbled by the consciousness of our shortcomings and the love which prompted the suffering of our Lord as the atonement for our sins. We are grateful for all that is symbolized in this communion of the Lord's Supper. We are grateful for his sacrifice on our behalf and the assurance of forgiveness of sins, of which this communion celebration is a reminder. 
We anticipate a renewal of faith, courage, love, and devotion as we share in this experience today. Bless each of us as we participate in this feast of remembrance. And now we pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On the night he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take and eat. This is my body that is broken for you. Every time you do this, do so in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, and after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, Take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink of this, do so in remembrance of me.